Hey everyone, this is here, and welcome back to the Super Combo Podcast. As usual, I'm joined by our host, Chris of UniX. Chris, how are you doing today? <laughs> you know when the evil laugh happens, be on point. Look, I'm doing really, really well. Definitely just had like a 17 hour sleep and the batteries are recharged. So uh, I'm doing well. It's just another good day in the neighborhood being the co-host of the Super Combo podcast. Uh, Herberto, stop stealing our logo. That was really, really whack. Um, at the same time, though, we've got that best U7 Gohan player on the planet, Energy, coming into your podcast once again. We're making thumbnails. And by the way, I'm not going to front. I think I have some of the best Dragon Ball Super thumbnails in the community. Look, we're just actually here feeling incredibly pumped. And if you disagree, let me know in the comments because... At the end of the day, more comments just means the algorithm pushes us. So if you want to argue or praise, I'm responding to everything you want to put down. Let's go. Good. The answer is good, George. Hey, let's go. That's what I like to hear. And, uh, you know, we, we missed out last week. We've been caught up, busy with a bunch of other stuff, and sometimes these things wrap. But it means we got a ton to talk about today. Most notably, we have a ton of reveals to go over. Uh, we got green some TP promos. I don't think it's all of them. But um, I think this round, we're getting a lot of TP promos from the looks of it uh blue uh has been starting to get showcased as well and then we'll touch base on organized play since the community has been all about that as usual and then we will wrap up with the sc mailbag as usual so last time we left off yellow was getting revealed and we saw some of the piccolo stuff or the make slash namekian but really mostly piccolo uh and then we uh saw the unisons with the yellow stuff and it looks like green is looking to do a repeat with <laughs> the cooler based archetype which is also based around unisons actually there's two coolers there's the meta cooler which is kind of cool leans on a little bit more on the token stuff and i do think it actually might have some legs this time around but the cooler unison is on everyone's eyes as it seems like that is the archetype that is going to Here, here's the thing so Cooler is looking to do pretty solid. I've heard a lot of very notable players say that it's going to do incredibly well. Although I will say, I don't think this is the kind of green that people were asking for. Um, so the Cooler archetype is similar to the yellow unisons, an archetype based around swapping into your unisons over and over and over again and getting additional benefits for it. Though it's again another King Cold situation in my mind where you know, when people are talking about wanting, like, you know, blue to be relevant or yellow to be relevant, you know, yellow is relevant because of the amazing card pool that allows you to play uh, a bevy of different archetypes. When it comes to cooler, we're looking at another King Cold situation where your deck is composed of like 40 cards that like <laughs> are all archetype based. And then you got like 10 ish cards for a wiggle room outside of that. So it, yeah. it, so it's while I do think cooler will finally give green players and an initiative to be able to play green again. I do think it does kind of miss the spirit of what green players were asking for, for a while. All right. Let me add him coach. <laughs> <laughs> Sheesh. All right. Um, I am being let Adam coach, right? I just have to make sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So I definitely agree in the sense that um, this is, this is, it's very gimmick. Um, but then again, the G in green stands for gimmick. If you were ready for gimmick cards in green, I don't know what to tell you because it's kind of just been what the color has been about for a solid amount of time. However, the issue I'm finding here 
is that uh, Cooler is a gimmick that has slightly been broken by previous cards. Um, you guys know that, uh, and if you haven't, please look at, uh, by the time this is up, I don't think there's going to be a one-on-one in his Spears page, but uh, George will probably get a one-on-one up at some point, I'm sure, because his, his business ethic, his grind ethic for, you know, is up, but it's just, it, it's there. However, I currently do have one that you can look at in time while you're waiting for George to have one up that's going to be well thought out, better produced, and, you know, better spoken. Now, <laughs> while this is happening, you will notice that uh, Cooler has the ability to put a one-cost um, unison into play that's green. It doesn't have to be a Cooler's Armored Squadron. What this means is that you can include Demigra. And one of the things that's kind of the difference between the meme deck that is Drip Q and the deck that is Cooler is that the meme deck that is Drip Q doesn't have a solid turn one because any unison you put into play can be curb-stomped by turn two aggression, or turn one aggression if you're going second against the deck. Whereas if you stick a Demigra, there's no way to put this dude beneath two counters. You will literally just start awakening the cooler player by swinging on the Demigra, but you'll awaken the cooler player by swinging on the um, the leader. And what this means is you give them a very nasty setup. Because once a cooler player establishes Demigra on turn one, you can be mechanical or posted. Or no, wow, I said mechanical or posted because Frieza is just still Frieza. You can be uh, <laughs> charismatic on turn one. Um, this wouldn't be exactly the same problem if you could not also be Salzed on turn one if they go second. So just imagine this. You go first and you play your one drop and you swing, or you can't swing. And then it's their turn. They swing with their leader, they take a life, they play a Demigra from hand off the wall. Then they have one energy open. On this one singular energy, you could swing at them with your leader. And no matter where you swing, they're getting a life to hand. You play a card, and they are going to be able to tap one Salza and blow up your card. Because Salza has the exact same effect as um, Charismatic. It comes into play and it blows up something with seven or less as long as it has three counters or more on it. If by some means you could play a third card, that card can now be charismatic as well. And if we kind of rewind a little bit, in certain decks, you're not going to be able to do that. But in certain decks like Gogeta Zeno, yeah, your turn one could be a Gogeta Zeno. And then your turn two could be the SSG Trunks. And this deck will be able to counter window one, tap one, blow up your, uh, your Gogeta Zeno with Salza. Counter window two play the free play Charismatic Frieza, blow up your Super Saiyan God. And that is three energy worth of valid swingers blown up for almost free. And um, it's very, very strong because turns one and two for this deck are just ironclad butt cheeks coming together of defense. And then, you know, four, five, and six, you can really just be golden Frieza unison for game. And there's not really much of a way you can avoid Golden Frieza Unison. You either have an established board that can be blown up by it, or you don't. And the craziest thing about it, even more so, is that you're going to have turns where you go into them going all four of my energies up, and I have an established board. Even if he kills my board, I can reestablish a board and try to swing through that. Well, that sounds nice in theory, but you're kind of wrong. Because if you swing with your established board without investing anything they can tap three and Golden Frieza and blow up your entire board minus barrier. Then you start establishing your board again, and what's the next thing they can do? They can dormant potential you, because they have a unison with six markers on it, 
then they can block with said Frieza, taking it down to five or four markers. Now you have one more attack. It doesn't matter what you put on board. You only have one more attack. And this, in turn, leads to almost like a yellow fallacy, where yellow is able to string together the same plays multiple turns in a row. Where do you think you're going to be if they have another Golden Freeze and another Dorm? The exact same place. You can't invest to your board more because next turn there's a valid chance they're going to Golden Freeze and nuke your board again, followed by Dormant Block. They can potentially lock you out of the game for multiple turns straight. Um, and it this would not be as toxic if Demigra didn't make turns one, two, and potentially three on lock with the way the deck works then making turns four, five, and six their playground because of the cards they have access to as green's natural defenses. So um, it may be gimmicky, but Cooler has legs. <laughs> it might be the best deck so far shown out of uh, out of uh, Ultimate Squad, hands down. Yeah, uh, it reads incredibly powerful. So, you know, um, like you said, it just it just does really solid things. Uh, lines up with some of the older green stuff to kind of create like a really oppressive uh, gameplay loop. So deck does incredibly well. Um, but you gotta like the cooler cards to make it work. So if if you like the cooler cards and you like the cooler deck with like those you know a uh, dozen ish odd Jerry green pieces, then it definitely lines up to be a phenomenal strategy. So I think regardless it's a step in the right direction as much as it does come off as a very r-type heavy deck hey at least green will have something to play whereas it really feels like they've had nothing substantial for two sets so uh having something to be able to play is definitely going to feel great and hey at the end of the day decks like these are really easy to pick up for uh, newer players because they just need this set to make it all together uh, bring it all together um naturally having dormants uh and uh, the Demigar are going to help, but Demigar is worth nothing. And then Dormants are relatively cheap these days. So it uh, lends itself to a good strategy. So another good archetype to kind of bring together the set. So definitely lends itself great to something to look forward to. I personally, am, uh, if we're sticking on, well, while we're sticking on the green side, I'm really looking forward to the Medicooler stuff. <laughs> I mean, hey, yeah. hey I, 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 I like memeing it out, um, but the deck looks solid. I think this is the closest that a Medicooler strat is going to come to be viable. I tried to make the reboot leader work, um, but the problem with Medicooler support over the last three sets of this game, or three years of this game, has been like, okay, so they created the archetype, and then they gave it kind of tangential support, um, and then they created unisons, they created tokens that were clearly meant to go with the deck, but the tokens don't count towards the uh, clones which means that they don't actually work with the strategy. And then they made a reboot leader. And again, they made like, they made a unison that didn't synergize. So it, it, it's this really weird situation where you get a lot of random incidental support, some that actually directly supports the deck, some that was clearly intended to support the deck, but then it didn't. So I think that this variation of Metacooler in which you swing, you get to play tokens. And then like the entire archetype is based around sacking off those tokens or sacking off those uh, Metacoolers, but then you get to bring them back and you get to utilize them. Um, I think this will lean itself to be the closest that a Metacooler strategy is probably going to be viable. So um, to that front, I think it's super cool. Uh, we now have uh, infinite multiplication coolers that are in all three colors that the deck's viable in. So I think that's yellow, green, and red. So that's super cool. It means that there's going to be some overlap with the older strategies as well, if you're really looking to make that work. And it is arguably it is leaning itself to be a really easy Selzino deck. You know, you tap eight for successor and then you get the tokens back and then boom, free, free successor into a Selzino. Hey, yeah. <laughs> um, so I love my multicolor strats. Um, I'm a big, uh, I'm glad Medical is coming back. And I think um, 
it'll lend itself really well to uh, a fun time. So in general, green is definitely on the upswing. I don't think it is everything to make up for the lacklusterness of the past, you know, three plus sets. But nevertheless, uh, it does look like it's rearing its head around the corner, which, uh, corner, which is super exciting. And I think a lot of players should have a lot to look forward to on that front. Um, we do also have the pre-release cards, which uh, I forgot to add to my notes as I'm scrolling through the Dragon Ball Super Card Game Facebook page. And uh, they're meant to go with the, Unis the yellow Unison deck, and they're like, all right. <laughs> um, you got Trunks, who's a 5k. They're both one costs. Trunks uh, discards a card from hand to draw one as a 5k. And then when this card's placed to the drop area from your unison area, you get to add a Gohan. And then the Gohan does the same thing where he's able to get the Trunks and they go back and forth. Um, and then they have, um, they have more power based on the amount of markers, but only offensively. So they're, they're cute. I don't think they're all that useful in the actual strategy, but. They exist if that's what you're looking to do. <laughs> um, and then to top that off, we got a new secret rare. Invaders yeah. Vow, very much in the theme of the Z Fighter squad. However, this time green and based around Frieza clan stuff. So whereas uh, the Z Fighters, based on all the Z Fighters, your Gohan, Krillin, Tians, all that. Uh, the Invaders Vow, ultimate activate battle for one green if your leader card is green or a freezes clan card and your opponent is three or more energy your opponent discards two cards as opposed to drawing two from the z fighters uh, and then you get to choose up to one of your opponent's battle cards energy costs less than or equal to the number of unison cards and freezes clan cards in all leader areas energy areas battle areas unison areas drop areas and warps ko it and then remove this card from the game um it's okay i think uh right like it like the one thing that it does really well is that it can effectively destroy almost any uh, almost anything at uh instant speed uh which green has a tendency like like all green stuff has the ability to kind of do this at the speed right you could play like the great ape monkey and it kind of effectively doesn't the great ape also get ignore barrier if i remember correctly uh anything that comes from the dark ages of me getting out of the game for like a couple sets it's a little risky i have to look it up i can definitely look it up no no i got this people. so just to say that it's an ability that green has had for a while so it reads okay but i'm not intensely hot i think it's a cool card i think it may lend itself to be a decently collectible card um but i don't think it's fantastic and uh yeah the ape ignores barrier so i don't know at least the ape is also a finisher <laughs> but it but like so the difference here being that it forces you to discard too so it's like a ribrian stacked on top of a destruction ability but it's conditional on your board like your board like all known information so board uh drop warp all that stuff thoughts um, I did a whole video well I did a video about the cooler cards and then moved on to invaders vow it's just worded subpar to me. It's a secret rare. Why does my opponent get to choose which cards they drop? Honestly, for being a secret rare, I think it could discard three and I choose randomly. And mm. it would still be balanced because it's a freaking secret rare. Go through barrier, let me choose three cards. Agreed. Simple as that. Like, it's, it's a one-of in your deck. Why is my opponent feeling their overwhelm with the worst cards in their hand for my secret rare? Yeah. Uh, pretty much. That's kind of where I'm standing on it. But either way, I mean, 
Um, in general, the secret rares for this set have seemed very thematic and very tied to the kind of strategies they're lined up with. So I can understand like them being on a lower power threshold, um, especially since, you know, there has been a lot of talk in the community over the past few sets about uh, generic SCRs that kind of go in every deck. Right? And like we've we've gotten to the point where, you know, it, it, Bandai could have seen tournament results and realized that every deck either had Kai or Pan in their deck as a secret rare of choice and noticed that like they need to vary up their design space to make it so that not every deck plays the exact same secret. So maybe that's what we're starting to see here. And as usual, with the way that the pendulum swings with these things, it usually swings a little bit hard the other way back before it kind of balances back in the middle. And that's probably just what we're seeing here at this point in time. Moving, moving on to the TPs. And I think we're going to get a lot of TPs. because, like, So over the weekend, they showcased four red TPs as well as four... Two blue, okay, so two blue ones, one of which is a reprint. So three blue ones in total, and then one green one. Um, so the first one is a Frieza swap, where it's a one-drop negate that swaps into a two, which is kind of cute. Uh, I'm sure, the, I think the deck likes that. Uh, you have a Jiren, which effectively plays the Topo. So you get a Jiren on board on top of being able to uh, get Topo out, which is kind of cool. So it kind of adds consistency there. I'm sure the deck will appreciate that. It'll take as many one-drop Jirens as it can get. Uh, baby parasitic villainy is a red baby card, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah. um, works decently. It uses a Vegeta. The kind of benefits of the other one drop babies have been that they utilize any card to evolve into the four drop or Union's version to the four drop. This one specifically uses Vegeta GT, which could make it like a little bit tougher to use. Um, but it also has some extra benefits that you can uh, basically cycle with it. So not too bad. I'm sure the deck will appreciate that. And then Nat on alert is a card that goes with the Machine Mutants. Um, if you guys, Doctor Mew. Oh, that's is a uh, is the red archetype based around Machine Mutants for the new set. Is it a uh, Doctor Mew on the front? And it's Doctor Mew. Uh, it's Doctor Mew and uh, Rildo. Okay, so it's both of them. Yeah. Okay. 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 So uh, when played from hand, you get to add a general Rildo, which costs a five or less from your hand to your deck. So it just added consistency there. So red is all about added consistency. This TP um, just buffing up your ability to be able to search, find things, or be able to go into your chains. That's kind of nice. Um, and then on the Sunday front, uh, the blue stuff, we have a Beerus that if played in a blue deck is a two drop that then plays into a four or five cost, which is kind of cool. It goes into some use old U7 cards which is kind of cute. Uh, we have Vegeta. Okay, this Vegeta card kind of tilts me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, Vegeta from the future, basically, if your leader is a Blue Trunks, which, like, we do know that we're going to get a Blue Trunks uh, either reboot deck or starter deck or something uh, going into the set after this one. So this is kind of support for that front. Uh, if you play it, you get to return one of your energy in your owner's hand and then add the top card to your deck to your energy and rest mode. Uh, I think the intent here is that when you ramp from your life, if you swap it out, you get to keep it. But like all, like I, I don't like this because already that deck was a deck that had like thirty plus archetype cards. Like there's just no room in that deck to add more stuff. I mean, fair. Now we don't have the one drop trunks to be able to set our life the way we wanted to. So I guess that's four slots right there. Um, but like even then, like this is, I don't know. Maybe there'll be some new stuff that'll really make me love this going into the reboot set. But at the moment, I do think that this one. Kind of doesn't really help the deck at the moment. 
especially since now your ramp is random, which is kind of tough. Uh, they reprinted Raditz, which is kind of cute. Uh, I, I wonder why. <laughs> amongst, amongst all the reprints, like, don't get me wrong, this was played in Soul Striker, sure, but um, I don't know if, like, it was played to an instance where this needed to be reprinted. Um, if I even just look it up for a peep, um, I don't really think it's worth anything at the moment. So, uh, let's take a quick peep. Uh, Reddit, Giant Force. Bam. Reddit's Giant Force on TCG Player currently goes for, if I make sure I'm not from Canada, because no one ships to Canada, you'll love to see it. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so, if we're looking at it, it's currently sitting at, like, three bucks market price. So, who knows? A little bit weird, but nevertheless, uh, blue players will take it. And then finally, we have a singular green card, which is Son Goku First Strike. And this goes with the U7, Beerus U7 stuff. Where, again, if it gets KO'd, you get to draw a card and then play a three-cost universe seven. This one being a dual attacker. So while your opponent has no battle cards, it's a 15k dual attacker. Otherwise, uh, it can attack barrier battle cards, which is kind of cool. So nothing too crazy. TP seems very down to the ground at the moment. Haven't yet seen the chase TP. If, you know, there might, this might be one of those where there isn't any. Um, but at the moment, I like this. I, li I like TPs that kind of like support older stuff. I think... Leaning a lot uh, on that is like gives people new reasons to play older decks on top of playing new stuff and kind of forces people to want to go to local. So uh, we'll see. I, I do think the power level is a little bit low, but the fact that they're leaning harder on supporting older archetypes at this point is kind of cool. I dig it. I do too. We've gone through a whole lot of TPs and wondering how to make it work. Um, I really do think we 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 could use a bit more power it's not going to necessarily hurt anybody mm -hmm. to see a bit more power it's just that people like admittedly so even things like thwarting would have probably been less of a problem if um if we had more locals going on to not make thwarting feel like a hot commodity because i i do understand that thwarting felt really bad when only a certain amount of people had steady access to thwartings because their prices just became astronomical while the card itself was so good. Yeah. Um, access was... So it's two parts, right? I think on that front, one, access is an issue because um, he came out in a time where people couldn't do locals. So the, mm -hmm. ones, the ones few that could and magically had like an entire TP kit with the stuff. Uh, crazy how that happened. Um, <laughs> you know, are able to decide what the market's worth. Um, but at the secondarily, it's also kind of the structure of TPs where um, when, when they shifted tps to have so many cards that a kit didn't guarantee x amount of every single one it makes it even tougher because now like your winner promos like aren't even guaranteed to be like the right uh, your winners are but the main set could be like missing some thwartings or stuff like that because there's too many of like one other one let's say so having too many tps on top of uh so having too many tps which kicked out cards from a kit based on randomness and then on top of that uh locals being just kind of hard to access at the moment definitely mm -hmm. lent itself to making it uh tough but i mean so far nothing crazy um you know nothing that like makes me like oh yeah i have to go to locals but at the same time i'm sure there's a lot of room in there to have a couple of chase cards that bring it together and like hey if i pull a beer it's like it's a kind of card that like might make me revisit like a cool like meme beerus oriented deck so i could see myself leaning myself towards that Hell yeah. 
And then going from the blue TP cards uh, to the inset uh, cards, we have the Red Ribbon Army finally being showcased uh, as of recording today on Monday. And the whole archetype, from the looks of it, is based around uh, sending your own two drops or less to the drop area to then uh, draw and play other stuff. So the leader uh, bottom decks or sense to drop a two drop or less it gets to draw a card and then you get to switch when you're energy to active mode so kind of like a not half soul striker but you know kind of sacrificing onboard tempo for uh, more energy to extend your plays the awaken is based on making that happen there is no other way to awaken with this leader um, which shouldn't really matter because it should almost be like a free guarantee by the time you can do on your first swing you should be able to awaken that's just kind of what it is sorry um, which leader again one more time the commander red leader Ah, okay, yeah. I'm on board now. Yep, yep. Uh, and then, again, pretty much the same thing on the backside with the other cards revealed being two-drop Commander Reds, uh, which effectively cycle into other battle cards. So, so far, nothing that makes it seem... Like, we kind of get what the archetype's going for, but there's no reason to play the deck at the moment. We're not seeing, like, a finisher. We're not seeing any reasons to want to play this over anything else um the energy refresh is kind of cool don't get me wrong especially since it can happen really early on effectively as of turn one but um it'll lend itself to see kind of what the rest of the archetype it'll live and die by that because it's very red ribbon oriented everything works with blue red ribbon specifically um so this archetype will live and die by how good the blue red ribbon cards are and we're just gonna have to wait to see if the deck gets another sr to kind of like bring the archetype together and make doing this whole strategy actually worth it, right? Whether it's counting how many red ribbons you have in drop uh, or whether it's doing some kind of like weird swap play, uh, we're just going to have to see how it all lines up together to kind of bring the archetype together. No, 100%. It's, uh, we're still early in these spoilers and I always hate talking complete shop. Like if you guys notice... I don't ever do videos with a single day of spoilers anymore. I generally wait to see when's our next little bit. Because in all honesty, I just need to see where we're going with the with the archetype, you know? Like, I need to know at least a little bit more about the base. Because sometimes mm -hmm. you see a couple things and a, a single SR or two rares will blow it wide open. You know what I mean? So I'm definitely on that, on that uh, plan of, like, just trying to see what's up. Yeah, just to get the whole picture. And oftentimes it's kind of why I'll wait until like when I used to do when I was more consistent with doing the one on ones, um, I would always wait until the entirety of the set release because like one TP can change the entire outlook on a set uh, on an archetype, right? One secret rare can change an entire outlook on an archetype. So uh, at this point, I, I almost always wait for, until we get the full picture and then from there kind of decide uh, how to best orientate myself in terms of uh, creating content for it. So that's what we have so far showcased in regards to the reveals. The reveal's going pretty okay. Uh, in general, I think people are not as hyped about the set as they were Realms of the Gods, but nonetheless kind of leaning itself into being uh, a set that'll at least have some exciting things going for it, especially when we look at the greenscape um, and, and just in general, the, the change of play, right? Like this sunset set for the block has very much looks to be lending itself and leaning hard into... Uh, giving us a lot of unison-oriented gameplay to really kind of drive home uh, the entirety of what the block was about, which is super cool. 
Mm-hmm. In between here and our previous episode, um, there were some leaks in regards to the Thursday Grid. Now, I'm not going to get, like, just for the sake of, like, caring about how, you know, Bandai wants to market and things like that. We're not going to go into detail about the secret itself. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's shit. It's such a terrible situation, <laughs> right? Like, it's... <laughs> Like I like, and I don't mean the card. Like, okay, <laughs> for those who know, it, like, here's the thing: if you if you know, you know. But I'm not talking about the card. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the card for a second, and I couldn't even I couldn't even defend my homeboy because. So I was like, mm. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. so so I'm like, I'm not even talking about the card, but the situation sucks, right? And like, I think you put it together really well when you talked about it in your video. Um, where it's just, you know, these kind of spoilers are super dangerous for the health of the game. Uh, why? Uh, one, it could totally mess up with any marketing plans that Bandai may have, um, which could be massive. Two, especially since it's tied in a way to the new movie coming out, it's that could also put them in deep water with uh, Toei, right? And then, yep. and then that... Right, like it, it, you can you can trace a lot of hard times that the game could have to just licensor agreements, you know, stuff like that. It, it's it's a very tough world to kind of maneuver around. Um, there's a lot of red tape, and uh, and it doesn't take much for licensors to be really upset about how you're managing their IP, and then adding even more restrictions on top of that. So a leak that not only um, you know, shows that potentially Bandai can't be trusted with the brand, but on top of that could lead to leaks in regards to, uh, you know, the release of things like a new movie um, has like long standing ramifications to the uh, health, growth, marketing potential of the game. So it's it, it, it super sucks. The fact that the situation happened at all, um, I will say good on the community to at least. I mean, you know, it. it if you even just attempt to look for it now, you could probably find it, but at least not let it be widespread on the Facebook groups and stuff like that. And at least kind of like being sort of low key about it, in which point I think, um, cause it could have been so much worse. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. not great, but it could have been so much worse. So at the very least, I think on that front we're managing. Okay. But you know, if I could ever have like any, if I if if my word has any sway with anyone out there who has the potentiality to spoil stuff like this in the future, I do hope that you would, you know, like not trade away the health of the game and like if anything, just like your relationship in the future with Bandai ever for like fifty Facebook likes. <laughs> like, like, like be be real, be real about it. Ask yourself if it was your job to literally just promote a game. And like, I'm not calling you a jack off, but some jack off <laughs> literally gets a hold of stuff early and decides to start putting stuff online. And then your company starts getting pissed at you for a leak that you had no control over. How would you feel? Because be real, you'd be online complaining about it. You'd be bitching about it. Like, I had nothing to do with this. Why am I being punished for it? And this is the situation that you're putting other people in. Like, is that fair? No, it's really not. <laughs> and on top of that not being fair, like, again, like, what does it gain? Like, like George was saying, 50 Facebook likes. In exchange, you've made work harder for somebody. Um, you've potentially hurt the ability 
of our like like what if this was a spoiler for the movie right what if this secret rare what if these cards were a spoiler for the movie and then toy was just like you know what because you can't be trusted we're gonna make it so that you cannot print cards that pertain to new material for six months until the material is six months old we'd be raging we'd be like hey yo moral arc three months why the fuck does our next set not have moro in it like <laughs> and it would be your fault like it would be the community's fault for spoiling moro cards like let's say they're like okay the moro season comes out in may it won't be done until july but our next set comes out on july 5th when the season ends on july 2nd so we're going to print the entirety of the Moro Saga in here, but we're going to save the Moro Saga spoilers for the last week of spoilers. And then some idiot with a set starts putting them out online. And Toei just goes, you know what? Fuck it. You guys don't get shit until six months later. And all of a sudden we're pissed. That is the ramifications that could happen due to spoilers if they decide to knit it that tightly together. And I think that's a point that lots of people are understanding. They're just like, Herder, a lot of Facebook likes, Herder, I'm going to seem like the man. But in reality, you don't understand that you could be hurting the game far more than you are helping the community. Ain't nobody going to be like, ah, thank God my life is saved. I need this secret rare two months early. Like, nobody is out here like that. Mm. Nobody. So it's just like, honestly, if you like the game, Try to think about its longevity before you think about your internet cloud. That's all I'm trying to say. Agreed. And like, I, and I feel like I have to preface this with everything I say these days. Um, but Ben, I didn't be, put me up to mentioning that. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> I just, I just care enough about the longevity and long-term ramifications of things like these to the game that, like, I feel like it's important to re- uh, like point them out. Um, I'm going to follow up on that. Bandai did not ask me to do that either. However, (laughs) um, I have, like most humans on this planet, a fair amount of ups and downs in life. And making Dragon Ball Super content right now is like some of the glue that holds the decombobulated, discombobulated like bricks of my life together. So if this game dies, there's going to be a significant hint, hit, hit, hit to my mental stability. And that's on you. Once I'm unhinged, who knows where I go? Your address? Maybe so. All right? You don't want that. You don't want that smoke. You don't want that problem. All right? Like, just don't. Just don't. Let this game be healthy. Let me keep making my content. We all get along. You feel me? Yeah. You feel me? (laughs) Incentive. No, I'm kidding. But for real, though, I just love this game. And I don't want to see it get cut short. It already has enough problems that are out of our control out of honestly sometimes band that's control just because of licensing we don't need any more problems agreed and actually that segues really well into the organized play portion now that we've gone over and uh listeners this is where daddy and daddy might start fighting so uh you know uh hold on emotionally <laughs> i heard y'all like two christmases <laughs> <laughs> um organized play has been a massive hot topic at the moment for the community and you know if i if i was going to try describing this at the moment we kind of touched based on it in previous episodes but effectively um the second quarter is comprised of three months starting in may uh and then ending in june where we were told that there were going to be irl slash convention events and then some online event not a regional but tied to something which is like okay cool fine 
Um, the problem being that there was nothing in uh, April. Uh, April was completely empty, no events, which is like really tough sacrificing one of your few events when already organized play took three months to get started. So effectively, by taking May out of the equation, entire quarter of the competitive season didn't exist for the year, which or like an entire quarter of the year didn't have competitive play, which is a little bit weird. Um, and then they had yet to announce IRLs until really late. And then finally they announced them, but like four was this weekend, uh, had an attendance of 220 something, if I recall, Eggman and Android were saying 226, something like that, which is good. Uh, honestly, for the little amount of time that people had less than a month to be able to like figure out travel and like get to go to the event, like good. I'm really happy that those numbers did well. Um, so like kudos to that. Super cool about that. But nonetheless, and I don't know where it stems, but right now the communication is really bad. I think the big thing is that there's no clarity. And like, don't get me wrong. I'm almost completely certain that for a large extent, Bandai is announcing these as soon as they can. Right? Like once it's lined up, that's when they're capable of saying like, okay, guys, we got this, this, and this. But but there's just kind of a disconnect there between them promising like, hey, these, this is going to start looking like this and then like kind of like the delivery on it. So the online event, for example, we were we are jumping into May at this point. So effectively one month into the three months of uh, organized play for this second quarter, which is the only things that we have announced. And they just announced over the past weekend the uh, online event, uh, which is effectively. And, and bro, this event tilts me so bad. First off, the first one is a week from the announcement, May 7th. This was announced mm. April 29th. The PPG Online Unison Warrior Cup is on May 7th, the week after. And then the Carta Magica one is the week after that, on May 14th. First off, it's a UW-only form, format-only event. So now we have a UW-specific format that people have, like, a week to get ready for. Which, like, but at the end of the day... I guess it doesn't even really matter because the pricing's garbage. Like, <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. If you win the event, you get a Fest Winter Stamp SCR. Dope. Uh, if you top eight, you get sleeves. If you top four, you get a couple of event packs. If you finish third, uh, you get a champ pack. You get five champ packs, my bad. It's just like, what is this? It, 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 and clearly, like, it's... It, it, it doesn't even mask itself as anything other than just recycling leftover fest prizing. So, like, I don't know if the intent was to do that from the get-go with these second quarter events, but it just, like, it, it feels bad on three aspects. One, the prizing's butt. Uh, two, the signups are incredibly last minute. Um... And three, and then three, the communication around is just kind of like bad. So it's, I, I'm in a frustrated place with organized play because like one, as a Canadian, there are no events that mean anything to me for three months. So like the one, there's no IRLs, there's no online. The only online tournaments now are these, and these are like laughably bad because they don't actually amount to anything. Um, so it's just like, as a Canadian, I have no incentives to play. And then as an American, there's a couple of regionals you can go to, which is super cool. And that's great, right? And, like, I think uh, Origins is going to have Dragon Ball as well. And then they just announced Gen Con. So, cool. The, the calendar's now getting filled out. Timeliness kind of sucks about it all. But, hey, they're, they're getting there. 
But it, it, it honestly feels, and like I, I do think sometimes that the community kind of outbursts a little more than they should, but it, it, at a core, and I've been saying this for a while now, it stems from communication. Why were the event, the fest events were hyped, and then at the last second they announced it was going to be UW format only, and then they had to back away from it because the community wasn't about it. And where was the underlying issue there? The underlying issue was the fact that the communication wasn't clear from the get-go. The expectations were set from the get-go. And there was a disconnect between what Bandai thinks our expectations are and actually what our expectations are, right? Why, like, why was UW bad? Not because no one's down to play UW. I don't think that's the biggest thing. But uh, it was just that competitive was effectively gone for three months at that point. 99.9% of players have stopped playing since November because Worlds doesn't impact them. So Worlds happens and we had nothing for a couple of months and then Fest happened and then Fest was like, okay, cool. This is the first event to bring us back into things. And then like afterwards was announced to be UW only format, uh, which is like, okay, weird. And it's just, there's a mismatch between the communication and the expectations of what the community kind of expects. And like this time around, I don't think people are upset because it's UW only format because it's UW only format. I think they're upset that they have a week to figure shit out. So it's, I'm frustrated. Like I'm annoyed because I got no events to play at. So like, but that's like unique to me and like, you know, the 80 or so other Canadians that play this game. I don't know. But like, it, it definitely feels that there's a dissonance there. And then on top of the fact that there's no direct community management or anything like that from Bandai, it does feel like we just kind of have to yell at the void and hope something gets answered. Now, I will say, things like the announcement for Gen Con today and the fact that this event even came out at all, progress, and I'll take it. And, like, kudos to whoever's able to kind of push those events out. I'm sure there's a lot happening internally that's making that difficult. But the communication has to be better. You can't say there's going to be events in Q2, which include um, May or April, and then have nothing in April. You, you can't have an entire region, a.k.a. Canada, have no events. Like, it's just... <sighs> All right. Now, like George said, Daddy and Daddy may have a little bit of fighty-fighty before we make up on this, uh, <laughs> on this podcast. And when I say this, I definitely mean that in, like, a sense that, one, I think 100% homie is justified for feeling like Canada's is being shafted. Like, why are there no events for a fairly sizable amount of the card gaming populace. Um, when it comes to some of the other points, I'm kind of weirded because, honestly, like, uh, for the in-person events, right, um, and for, like, things like progress, some of these events, and he touched on it before, some of these events definitely, like, you can tell what the timing, or I guess most people can't tell, otherwise they'd feel, like, maybe a little differently. Things like Gen Con are so big, there's no way you don't, like, these events open up almost the same couple of months after they initially close down. It's not like Gen Con closes down and then goes, okay, we're going to wait nine months to start getting signups. Gen Con closes down, and as a business, you have to already be on the docket. You have to be already trying to get your space months afterwards. Like, um, working with MAGFest, if you guys have ever been privy to it, it's a cool gaming music convention massive massive rager going on in uh, maryland every year you need to start buying your hotel rooms your uh your uh, your what's the word for it like event spaces inside the convention within months of the convention closing 
So what that tells me is that Bandai definitely planning on announcing Gen Con, but they're giving it to us the moment the ink dries. Now, that being said, yes, when there's a tournament that starts up and we've literally had a month notice to be ready for it, that feels like garbage. And my issue isn't people being mad. My issue is people being mad and assuming they understand they know everything that goes into setting up tournaments. Um, And this is going to sound like I'm like Bandai shilling, but like, honestly, it's just kind of a point where, don't get me wrong, when design is ass, when I feel like things are being handled like ass, I get very vocal about it and I go into it on my video. But I just feel like for things... For certain things, it's like, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. If Bandai has to announce that, hey, we're having an event, and we're doing it here, and we're doing it here, and we're doing it at this time, but they really don't know if they have it signed or 100% or not, then they potentially open themselves up to a realm of possibility where they get to, I don't know, let's say... (laughs) A couple weeks out, three months out, and they go, okay, uh, yo, backed out of this particular, you know, obligation, or we couldn't agree to terms the TO was okay with. And now, because of that, we have a new TO, but that new TO is only going to be available the week after. All of a sudden, you have, I don't know how many plane tickets, I don't know how much time called off that you now have to adjust to or just cancel, and that's going to enrage people. I would honestly say just as much, if not more, than them announcing something with what we feel is short notice. You don't really have a good avenue of doing it well as a business creator. If you learn that the event is 100% said to go a month out, then what do you do? Do you do you let people know the moment you have it and it's sure? Or do you let people know when you think it's for certain, letting that ability Letting that space be made where you can potentially get fucked and have to readjust when people have already started making plans. And I don't think that's an easy proposition for any company. Just looking at Gen Con, the fact that Gen Con doesn't happen in August, but we know it now, three months ahead, I think that kind of goes to show you that as soon as they know they can release these events, they are releasing these events. It's just that there have been some issues lately that have caused them to have to not let that go and to be honest let me know in the comments like help this become a forum let me know if you would prefer for them to give you information when they think it's information or when they know it's information because i would really like to see how the answer goes within the community i feel like a lot of people are driven by like immediate knee-jerk responses and would be like well as soon as they think an event's ready that's cool. But I just also want to know if you already requested off the time and your managers approved it and, you know, you've already allotted that, you've bought your plane tickets, you've gotten babysitters or you've gotten dog sitters or you've gotten whatever you need. And then they tell you, oh, yeah, it's next week. Let me know how that would make you feel on an average, you know. Oh, yeah, that'd be like here. incredibly feels bad. Um, so, like, I, I, I totally agree. I would 100% rather that they wait and then announce when everything is like all the, the, the lines or T's are crossed or whatever old people say about contracts. Um, and then whatever they do. Yeah, yeah, whatever they do, people do these days. Um, so like I would much rather they confirm everything and then announce it and have a tighter window and mean that less people then go than people booking, like you said, their 
their stay, their flight, their travel, their food, all that kind of stuff, and then have to like effectively waste it. So wholeheartedly agree there. Counterpoint. Yes. We are in fucking May. There were no announcements through January and February. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that people at Bandai work incredibly hard, and I'm sure there's a million things going on on top of the fact that they're throwing together, they're doing things like Digimon, and One Piece is coming. But, like, someone slept on the wheel here. We're five months into the year. Like, yes, by, don't get me wrong. Yes, it takes time to get TOs lined up and stuff like that, but we are five months into the year. The, almost the entirety of the organized play season by now should be figured out. And if it's not, someone's been sleeping. I can definitely agree with that. Some things that I've been trying to do lately, search into just like what the hell is going on. Because as much as I can be like, let me be sympathetic for these things, I'm also definitely kind of a person that wants to just know for my own purposes. And uh, one thing I've noticed is that we only have a couple TOs for this game. <laughs> like, uh, I've noticed like that. Three, like three at this point. It's yeah. like PPG, TAC Gaming, and Core TCG are the reliable ones. And I use reliable loosely. Uh, I'm not going to point fingers, but um, whatever. So we've got PPG, we've got TAC Gaming, and we've got Core TCG. Um, they've tried to branch out a little bit when they got uh, TOs like uh, Playing TCG or- and Level Up. Yeah. But Play TCG did Texas. Now, I will say, and this is actually kind of like pissing me off because don't get me wrong, I love this community and I want to help the community thrive. But when the same community can be like, hey, like y'all need to get your shit together. Y'all need to get TOs that know what they're doing. Y'all need to get TOs that are willing to help. Keyword, willing to help. And then the same people start posting gifs of trash cans on fire when it's announced that play tcg is trying to host another tournament all due respect like get the fuck out of here like you want to complain that tos aren't doing their part or that bandai isn't trying to accept new tos and then a to that is willing to take on the brunt but has made mistakes in the past don't get me wrong texas was a it it was something (laughs) it was not the best but for that TO to want to, like, look, I'm not going to front. Half of you guys can't take criticism on a fucking Facebook group. Half of you guys get flamed on the hell group and want to throw up hands because you're getting, like, reamed on by a bunch of people no lifing in a corner on Facebook. But you same people want to scoff at Play TCG for taking literally metric tons of hate for what they did in Texas, but stepping up and going, hey, Let's just try it again and see if we can come to a better standpoint of organized play. We messed up first time, but that doesn't mean we're going to mess up the second time. That's monumental. Like, that is them stepping up to the plate, knowing that they messed up, but trying to do better next time. And I think that's not something that deserves memory. That's something that deserves a second chance. They clearly know that they fucked up. Let them try to fix that. But don't sit there and just shit on them for trying again because we need T.O. If they can do this better a second time and then come and do it even better a third time and then get up to the point where we trust them as much as 
TCG, well, as much as core TCG, as much as PPG, as much as, yeah, um, we're going to get to a point where, where we have more TOs. Because one thing I've noticed is that we don't have a lot of TOs that play this game. 90% of the TOs that support Yu-Gi-Oh! don't support Dragon Ball Super. A lot of the TOs that support Digimon actually don't support Dragon Ball Super. And um, while we're here, I just want to say that's not because Digimon is a more sound game. I'm going to flat out put out this slightly educated point, but also just like straight up like it's opinion and it's educated point. A casual player base is going to come out. They're going to flood your store because they're casual. They just want to play and they want to do it at one place. It's not somebody's house. They're going to buy sleeves. They're going to buy deck boxes. They're going to buy loose packs. They're going to buy other product from the store. Hey, I came to play Digimon, but, you know, Digimon's not my life. I may like Gundam models. Let me buy Gundam models from your hobby store. Like, there are things that casual players will contribute to a store's bottom line that competitive players don't. If I'm there to play, wax up five people in a row, take my TPs and leave, I am not contributing to a store the way that a casual player will when they come there, spend seven hours chilling with their homies, buying drinks, buying snacks, buying sleeves. Digimon, in all honesty, is contributing more to almost any brick-and-mortar store than Dragon Ball Super is because of how their fan base is set up. And this is going to be a massive point when you ask a TO, would you like to run a Dragon Ball Super tournament and a Digimon tournament? They might be like, hey, I don't know about or that Super tournament, but the Digimon players, yeah, we have a really good crowd. I would like to step up and try to host a Digimon tournament. And when you go from there, yes, Bandai could probably be like, okay, let me lean on them to take it, both or nothing. But at the end of the day, if you have two separate player bases, are you going to cuck one player base because the TO won't take Dragon Ball Super? Or are you going to let the TO support your mediums how they do and then what that leads to is dragon ball super having more tournaments than dragon or not wow i keep saying dragon ball super over and over again that leads to digimon having more tournaments than dragon ball super because more tos are willing to branch out and take a leap on drag or uh, digimon the dragon ball super there's a whole lot of factors that go into it but the point is tos have their their standpoints they have their rights to refuse to do a tournament they have their rights to support a game that they feel better about supporting. And right now, that's just kind of how it is. Like, we don't need to scoff at TOs that are willing to support Dragon Ball Super. If anything, we need to help them. We need to let them know what they did wrong in a constructive manner. We need to attend their tournaments when it's feasible. Sometimes a month ahead is not enough notice. It's rarely enough notice. But if we get a couple months ahead, don't, don't flame them. Tell them what they could be doing better. Be nice about it. Show up. That's going to be what makes them be willing to make more tournaments. That's going to be what's going to make Bandai see these tournaments and be like, wow, we hit cap. Let's go. Let's increase cap if we can due to that state's laws on, you know, pandemic shit. Let's let's put more money to in-person tournaments. Because the last two tournaments we did filled out really well. You have to present the environment to make this feasible and at the same time that's not all on us because the first step is with bandai bandai needs to make tournaments where we feel good about going to spending money to go to and spending money to enter but after bandai makes it enticing enough it is on us to show bandai that they should keep doing this it's it's a two-way street you have producers you have consumers and i think Far too many times we act like the producers are the end-all be-all of what makes this. But at the end of the day, they're a business. If we don't even cap a fest, 
and I'm going to not lie. Yes, now Fest stuff is over. It's oversaturated. There's no reason to really go to a Fest prizing tournament. But when Fest first released, that shit was free. Like half the units since they released there were over $10, $15, $20. And you were getting play sets of them just by showing up. True. Like Fest tournaments were free when they first started. And we didn't even hit cap. We were just like, no invites? Fuck it. And that's fair. Because we need invites, especially with no tournaments that announce invites. We needed invites, end all, be all. But they made a pretty fair tournament that was pretty free and had very little investment. The way that tournament was set up, by 5, 6 o'clock, most players were outside enjoying Miami. That's unheard of in a TCG tournament. <laughs> like, you go to a, you went to one of the fest tournaments, you were literally plussing out your ass going to the tournament. And you were still being able to enjoy the surrounding area without being at 11 p.m. at night. In all honesty, besides not having invites and not being best of three, which was actually part of the reason why we were out so early, the tournaments were actually a, a really nice setup for a casual, nothing on the line, but you can still plus heavy. They were a great setup. And as a community, we kind of presented the image to Bandai that we didn't really care for the type of settings. And granted, like I said, I will always be an advocate. As Dragon Ball Super players, we need a more competitive prizing system, and we need more on the line. But it's just kind of, to me, at least stepping back from everything, it's hard for me to look at a Bandai event split between two games where one game is hitting cap and refusing players after a certain point, and the other game is not even hitting half cap for us to, or for a company to look at both these tournaments and be like, hmm we might need to reconsider some of the structure. But luckily, we have vocal people online. We have people raising the questions that need to be answered, even if it's not in the most constructive realm of phrasing. And I think that we we are going to go up from here. If nothing has been said, is that Bandai is always responsive. And they are one of the quickest companies in terms of response. We just need to see how it plays out. Agreed. Um, very well summarized, and that's that's generally just it. It's like my frustrations lie with like because it's kind of a catch twenty two, right? Where like yes, obviously we need to be supportive and go to these events to sh like it. We need like Bandai needs to see a return on investing time into creating these events happen, and if they kind of flop on an attendance basis then like naturally they're going to want to stray away from it. But at the same time, if the lack of communication, um, the pricing structure of the tournament uh, and the timing of the tournament lends itself to attendance just kind of being tough to make in general off the get-go, then it creates this terrible feedback loop where they see like, oh, look, we created events like they asked and no one went. But at the same time, it's like the, the, the way it was released was, a, was kind of doomed to fail from the onset. So it's, it's like... 100%. So, so, we created events. We created fest events. Okay, but did we want fest events? We made, you said you wanted to play. We said we wanted good prizing. These things are not the same. And then you have two sides that don't match up. Yeah. They gave and, us games, but they didn't give us a structure that we wanted. And so we don't show up. And then on their end, that gives them used to be like y'all didn't show up why do we need to keep doing this and we're like why won't you be normal and they're just screeching 
they're screeching on both sides. Yeah, pretty much. It's a terrible catch me too. It almost feels like there needs to be just like a refresh and then like kind of like reset the tone. So I, my hope is that quarter three, uh, third quarter is that refresh and that retone um, and a bit of a roadmap. Um, by the time quarter three comes out, it's going to be what, July? I would hope that by July, we understand what the rest of the year looks like. We understand what quarter three looks like. We understand what the Nats season is going to look like and potentially Worlds 2022. Um, I think having the full roadmap and understanding of the expectations of the year, a layout of who's going to be able to play in what, and then a structure that makes and aligns with the beliefs and desires of the players who play your card game will help kind of alleviate the current frustrations of which is kind of a coin toss on whether like when we're going to hear from events and stuff. So SB got me hot talking about all that. Look, I (laughs) 100% agree. And to be fair, I think that there are things that are just good on a business transaction. I will be completely candid with my initial thoughts on this and what I'm trying to strive for as a person that Sometimes gets the opportunity to work for Bandai. I'm starting to get a lot of reach in the community. I put out questions. People give me their input. I'm trying to work my best to kind of reach a certain standpoint with the game. And when I feel like you have to make this worthwhile for the uh, worthwhile for the TOs and the brick-and-mortar stores. And I think systematically, with how skill-intensive our game can be, this all stems from pricing. Um, If the pricing for locals and tournaments are good enough, you're going to see a lot more brick and mortar stores loving our tournaments because if our locals are 20 to 30 people, that's straight cash. The tournaments and the locals are where brick and mortar stores profit. They make Jack Diddley squat off of the margins of actual booster packs. If you guys ever ask your TO and they are open enough to let you know, you will find that the margins for booster packs, unless they gouge you, which will generally kill their store's credibility, uh, average markup for a booster pack box is generally $10. Or They're making pennies on the dollar for how much they sell versus how much they buy the sets for. Meanwhile, you are looking at tournaments where they get a tournament kit for significantly less and they charge people seven, $8 for playing. You get 30 people. You're already doubling. Like by the time you run out of your tournament kit, you've probably quadrupled, quintupled how much you made from it generally. So a TO or brick and mortar store needs locals to be banging for them to love the game. That is why you see Pokemon, which gets kids and adults in there going off. That's why you see Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic. They're averaging massive amounts of bodies per week for their events, which is going to mean that store is actually making money, not just from the, the card game tournament itself, but from those different pieces of apparel, from food, from drink, from all those things I was talking about earlier. So you want Dragon Ball to be in the mouths of more brick and mortar stores? On a systematic level, we need to make locals more enticing. We need to make locals more widespread. We need to make sure that the avenues of communication are more open to every brick and mortar store. And we need to make sure that people have a reason to show up there every week. Past that, you want the big TOs to start showing our game off, to start hosting more of these tournaments. You need to make sure that our prizing and our structure are good enough to where players feel good for playing. Because like I said, skill translates better in this game than almost any other game I say other than Magic, and maybe in some cases better because you can't get Mana Starved or Mana Flood. And so if you start giving our prizing the juice, players are going to start understanding that if they practice and they research and they play well, 
their shoe-ins for good pricing. And if their shoe-ins for good pricing, that makes the dream live. Everybody starts coming to our games. Casual players start learning better to be able to prize. Competitive players start showing up to every tournament they can. Other games will be like, why would I play Yu-Gi-Oh when I get cashed the fuck out in Dragon Ball Z all or Dragon Ball Super if I just practice hard enough and put in the same hours I'm putting in Yu-Gi-Oh or Magic? Bam. That's how you start getting more TOs to be like, a Dragon Ball Super tournament? Fuck yes. <laughs> 500 people? Sounds like easy cash. That is how you start getting people to love our game more. So I think that's the angle that we need to hit best in order to start seeing more love and the growth of our game. We need to make locals and our premier tournaments pop off. And from there, we'll flourish better. That's my personal opinion. Agreed. Makes sense to me. And actually, so to kind of put a bow on it, you've been kind of on a crusade to collect information. Um, you've reached out uh, to myself and other content creators. I know you've reached out, uh, like you said, in your YouTube video to uh, competitive players, and then you reached out uh, to your user base uh, through that video. Um, and I don't, I don't know how deep you are in the process of like compiling that data, but um, is there like a general trend you're seeing across the different groups of the community that kind of like like, does it come together to, like, some kind of a clear thematic message? Or is it just kind of a hodgepodge in terms of, like, what it sounds like the community wants? Um, so, so far on a large scale, most players have admitted that they'd be willing to travel about once a month. As long as it's not, like, across the entire country. Like, you know, East Coast players would definitely travel once a month to East Coast. Uh, big tournaments uh, they also probably travel you know mid america um same with west coast except the exact opposite i'm also finding that um a lot of players while they 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 are mixed on the best of one a lot of people feel like if there's invites in the line best of one should not be in the question but we are there's a surprising amount of players that are okay with best of one swiss top cut best of three that actually may be what's more efficient because if you neg the day, you don't have to neg the time of the day. You can just go about your business. Meanwhile, if you do get to the top cut where it matters, where you want to get your clout, where you're playing for more prizing, you get to go to best of three, which will feel more comfortable. And that's going to still make some contention for players that feel like it should be best of three from start to finish. But I think that cuts the biggest, biggest difference. As for prizing, um, I was saying before, a lot of people are going to be happy as long as their entry is a mass is, is, a, is a sizable plus from what they paid to enter. That's, for the most part, what's going to get people already there. If I pay 40 to get in a tournament, but I could easily flip everything I got for around 80, then most people are happy because they are confident that they could at least try to score higher than just showing up. And if they score higher than showing up, generally Dragon Ball 16, generally Dragon Ball is a plus. But lately, you've had to get to the top four, in this case for Fest, the top three to really plus. And that makes it very, very alienating for people that might bubble. So I think it's just a matter of tournament structure. But a lot of players are saying that if the entry is good enough, that automatically incentivizes them to show up to a tournament. And then past that, it's a matter of playing to get up higher. So, yeah, we're forming some opinions. I'm just trying to let a little more filter in before I start finishing my compilation. 
Fair, fair. All right, sounds pretty good. So one, one last jab before we get out of here. Um, so yeah, like you're saying, you you kind of need to finish in like the top three for this event to even relevant. Uh, just to take another cap uh, talk at the Unison Warrior Cup because I just have to keep on shitting this prizing. Um, actually, it's only the top two because third place is only champ packs and event packs, and top four is only event packs. Oh, and by the way, since this is until one undefeated, you can actually end up being the player that goes undefeated the entire day going into finals. And then if you end up losing your finals game, you can pull a Brian Samuel and go from potential first all the way down to fourth. In which case for these Unison Warrior Cup, whatever they're called, you go from potentially having um, a Festamp SCR with some packs to just having two event packs. See, that is what we call unadulterated garbage. Um, I, do, <laughs> I do have to say, though, George from PPG made a very big dick energy play that more or less, in my opinion, exposed almost every single TO. And that is that when we went to Miami, one of the first announcements was, wear your mask. And I have a huge, huge, hilarious, hilarious photo of the judge saying this is a mask up event while three people with envy behind him on. I'm not going to point fingers, but it was fucking <laughs> hilarious. Now, the second part of this, though, is that when the judge was done giving the initial stuff, George immediately picked up the mic and said, we will not be adhering to the one-player undefeated rounds. We will have eight rounds today, and that will decide our top cut. So he did it. It flew, and we were happy for it. So on that end, again, I'm not trying to like be a Bandai shill, but these are certain, there are every there are things you can be mad about. There are things that you need to ask the correct people for. If George can step his foot down and be like, we will not be adhering to this shitty rule, you might want to ask your TO how they're playing the tournament before it starts, before you start raging at the people who are actually asleep during the time zone that this, this tournament's being played in. Like, they don't care how long our tournaments go. They don't. As long as it's good and well-received, they're happy with the results. But George wanted to uphold the integrity of the tournament, and he wanted to make the most people happy. And so he said, I don't care if it makes the tournament longer. We're playing best of one. No, until undefeated rule. And it flew. And if George can do that, I want to believe that any TO can decide, hell nah, this is not what we're doing. This is what we're doing. And so it kind of set a precedent to me. I think just one bold move by George really kind of put the heat at everybody else's door to be like, do you have to do this? Because he didn't. He just said no. <laughs> like, Backs up. So best of one undefeated is garbage, but I no longer think that like this is some gun to your head Bandai mandate because George is like no. Uh I mean I, I almost think it is and George said fuck that, but and George is kind of But that's the thing though. <laughs> that's the thing though. He said fuck that. And what did Bandai do? They said nah, cool. And the tournament was great. <laughs> like, I, I think it's literally, I think if anything, this makes it even more prevalent that any TO could be like, well, guess who's running this tournament? Us. No one undefeated and see how it goes. And to be honest, if people start, like, think of how you guys, like, I'm not going to say monkeys because that's rude, but think of how everybody's going, kind of going on the, like, Facebook right now. Uh, we complained and it got stuff done. Do you think that can't happen with positive reinforcement too? 
Like, you think if every TO just says, nah, I don't really know about the best of one undefeated, and everybody goes, yeah, this was one of the best tournaments I've been to. You think that that would not sway Bandai in the same way that negative reinforcement does? True. Like, just think about that. Think about that. I think more power, like, you guys always holds when people complain. Bandai would probably just as easily be happy to be on board with the ways we like to show up for the games. If best of one, if uh, if no, if one undefeated rule being ignored makes these tournaments start capping out, I, I think you'd be on cock and balls to say that would not change how the structure is set up. Fair. Very fair. So we'll see. I mean, like, there's a lot of, th- like, there's a lot of time, right? There's, they tested the best of one preside rule and then have never implemented it since. So I'm sure there's a lot going on internally data-wise. And I'm sure that we'll still see some sweeping changes to OP and to the structure of things as we move into Q3. And then hopefully Q2 is just a transitionary period where things are kind of like getting worked out. Um, so it's kind of our touch base organized play to put a bow on it. Uh, congrats to Jared Lopez for taking down uh, an event uh, regional with uh, Android 16. Can't be Hell stopped. Yeah. Won't be stopped. Keep on doing it. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, prayers out to my, to my boy Brian Sam for unfortunately playing an incredible day going undefeated the entire day just to get kicked down to uh, fourth place after losing to the champion of it all. Gotta, Less, go, yeah. gotta love the Swiss structure. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, when you when you only have so many rounds and you cut it short early, like because of one undefeated, you get people like. And don't, don't, like, literally don't get me wrong. I have never been an advocate for best of one. I will 100, or not best of one, uh, one undefeated rule. Like, I will 100% say that the undefeated rule leads to a lot of weird, wonky shit in a tournament. The best, uh, like, the uh, one undefeated rule led to people trying to intentionally draw back when that was, like, Back before Bandai made it much harder to draw with people. And, like, to be honest, the one undefeated rule is the one reason why I got first place at Gen Con. Like, I had a top eight record, not a first place record. And if people had been playing for wins and not playing to keep their record in the top eight due to this one undefeated shit, I would have been somewhere between first and eighth place. But I don't think I would have been first place. I think there are people that could have been X and one like me that had better tiebreaker. So it just really makes it makes things weird. It doesn't really do anything positive. To be honest, I think a lot of people to not not hate on your judges or TOs, but I think a lot of people need to understand that the one undefeated rule benefits one party beyond all others, and that's the people managing the event. The people that had to show up there at 8.30 a.m. and don't get to leave until 11, 12 a.m. Or 11 p.m., 12 a.m. That's the people. That's the demographic that this one undefeated rule protects. Like, if you showed up to a tournament as a player, you already know you're about to be for a minute. You know that. If you are Bandai in Japan, you don't give a fuck how long this tournament runs. You set it out. You paid the money for the venue. You paid the money for the Whatever happens, happens. Unless it's bad, then you care. The people that don't want this tournament running 14 hours are the people that have to be on their feet all day, taking match records all day, 
making announcements all day. Those are the people that want the best of, or the uh, the one undefeated thing to continue. And granted, that's not wrong. They have a lot to do. And be honest with yourself. You wouldn't want to spend 14 hours on any job you were doing. That's whack. That's a lot of work. And that's a lot of work knowing that you have to be back at the following day. So I'm not saying hate on your TOs because they need more anybody in this community at this point for if we want our game to get off the ground more. But I think that you should also understand that we are trying, like, and by we, I mean, as this is, as a game, we need to understand that there are metrics that every single demographic that makes up our game needs to be paid attention to. The collectors, the competitive players, the tournament organizers, the company themselves, and the undefeated, the one undefeated rule may suck for the competitors, but it's something that makes the tournament hostings more tolerable for the TOs. And you can't just be like, oh, well, they're TOs. They should know the deal. Okay, you know you have to work for a paycheck, but do you want to be there for more than eight hours? The answer is no. And you know you're doing what you're doing to make your living, but that doesn't mean it has to be any harder than it needs to be. And these current rule sets about time and one undefeated, they help these TOs manage the tournament without giving up three-fourths of a day, knowing they only have a couple hours to sleep and they have to be back doing the same shit. So just try to be a little compassionate for everybody involved. I'm not a Bandai shill. I'm an everybody shill. I try to see things from everybody's points of views and then go in from there. And TOs need love, too. That's all I'm saying. All right. Very well but with that we'll be jumping into the sc mailbag and if you have a question that you'd like myself and chris to talk about on air then feel free to tweet at us at sratv with the hashtag sc mailbag or jump onto the discord where there is an sc mailbag category where you can ask your questions on there and the first one comes from twitter from I don't even four three one one O S S J Allen. <laughs> what? Yo, wow. I, I, Xbox Live gamer right? with the with the username Nani four twenty. <laughs> Damn it! Wow, I, I expect this. I expect this question to be powerful. Hello, guys. I'd like your opinions on Untap. I live somewhere where sadly DBS isn't big, so I'm stuck with Untap, and I've heard mixed things about it. I know Chris likes it, and George doesn't. So I thought it might be interesting to hear what you guys say. Can I please go first? Please go. All right, sir. Uh, I respect your question. I need you to understand I hate Untap. Uh, <laughs> I hate it. Uh, however, I am not at the capacity to where I can have every card in the game at my disposal for showcases and for cards that are coming out that aren't even in print yet. I have to use untap. Moreover, when it comes to testing, there are many people who are not are in the same situation who can't have every card at once. And that's where untap comes in. So to be fair, I feel like untap is like it's it's like Dark Knight Rising. It's not the hero that like we like need. It's the hero that we deserve. Like, look, it gives us access to the entire card pool. And yes, because Untap is a program, it's a web page that's made for any single card game that comes its way, 
it's a little bit more mechanical. It's like uh, the difference between iPhones, iOS, guiding you through all of its functions and Android being more open source. You're going to be able to see the inner workings of things and there are going to, things, there are going to be things that seem more clunky, you know? You can't just put a card and click an attack button and have it turn. No, you put the card on the board, you click the tap button, it's going to tap and you have to let your opponent know, I'm swinging with this thing. But that's because Untapped facilitates every single card game in existence that people upload assets for to be played. And that can be a little overwhelming when you come to play Dragon Ball Super and only Dragon Ball Super. But I think it's one of those necessary evils. Yes, you may have a little bit of a steeper learning curve understanding how Untap works. But pound for pound, Untap is allowing you to do so much more in terms of testing than not having Untap. And that's why I, I mess with it. I don't necessarily love it. I wish there was an in-game client. But to be real... An in-game client is going to require a lot of changes that I don't think this game is ready for. And I don't think that uh, the company is ready to a lot money to. And uh, in a game that needs to be sold physically, I don't think that a full-blown online client is going to do anything to help the sales of this in-person game. In fact, I think at this point, with the lack of in-person tournaments, if we had a solid online client, it would actually probably kill the in-person game. I'm not going to front. Um. Yeah. Uh, just to add on to that, um, another aspect is just that, like the Untap. So here's the thing: Untap has some slight functionality where, for whichever game you play, it'll zone it in a certain way, and there's some options that are given to you that aren't in other games to kind of facilitate that. So there is a little bit of tweaking to align it with the card game that you play. But at the end of the day, Chris is absolutely correct. It's a card simulator that just happens to have some DBS functionality on top of it. And there's only so far that they're allowed to go for it. If you automate too much of it, it'll get shut down. We've seen Bandai do it with Dragon Ball before. We've also seen them do it like three, four times with Digimon, right? Like any kind of auto sim will get shut down. Um, so like it's, it, there's only so far Untap can go, not only from a basis that it's trying to be an open platform, but just so it doesn't get shut down, which like understandably so. So my take is I respect Untap for what it allows players to do. It allows players to test. It gives access to a card pool for everyone to be able to mess around with. Um, and I do, my number one thing, like you guys know, I'm the singles guy. I don't buy sealed product. I buy singles. Always test out your singles. Always make sure that what you're buying is product that you're going to get usage out of. And how do you get that? By testing it. And Untap is the best platform to do that, bar none. So I will never take away from that. I just hate the platform, man. I, I can't. Um, like, first off, like, especially when I'm the dickhead who doesn't test, right? Like, <laughs> like I, give me a platform that's fantastic for effectively just testing where the game plays like me, where the game feel is like hyper mediocre to bad. I have zero incentive display. I don't give two shits about testing. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's pretty bad, but I just kind of high roll or play off of intuition. And that's how I do well in tournaments. Um, so like at the end of the day, the platform to me doesn't have usage because I don't care about testing. Um, like just, just to show you guys how like disassociated I am from untap. I participated in the Hermit style podcast charity event where uh, me and Giancarlo ended up playing uh, Champa and Beers deck. And it only occurred to me after like, like the day before the event was going to happen that they were expecting to do it through untap. Whereas I had already gotten like a webcam set up and everything to be able to play with real cards. Right? Like it's that, that's how disassociated I am from the rest of the community. Cause I actually don't give a shit. I don't play 
with new cards until the cards come out in paper. So, so yeah, I just like, and I understand it's a very privileged position to be. Well, I mean, privileged. I just don't care. So it kind of makes it easy. But I also do live in an area where you know Canada not the most accessible, but cards are accessible. So, um, so when it comes to uh, our our companion here who asked us the question, my heart goes out to you that your region doesn't actually really support the game. That's super sad. It sucks. And by all means, I am so happy that Untap exists for you to be able to explore and play the game because the game is mechanically probably one of the best card games I've ever played, if not the best. Right. So uh, I love the card game. I think it does incredibly well. I just hate manual Sims. They suck. If this game had an auto sim, I'd be playing it every day in my life. Um, but manual sims suck and then like untapped super sucks. And then like half the time it's like half the time it's a racism speed run before I get called something unsavory. And then the other time it's like the guy doesn't even know their counter windows or think cards work the like whole other way. So I don't know when you, when you do a mishmash of all those, it's like, I'd rather just not, but like, uh, it'll never take away from the usability and uh, amount of work and support that Untapped does give the community. So I'm glad it's here. I wouldn't want it to go away. But one, I don't test, so I don't give a shit. Two, I just don't like it. So I just don't bother. And I'm lucky enough that, like, I, I have, like, innate UI to just do well at events. <laughs> so here's a couple of things you need to understand from everything that George just said. One, one, Untap does require a certain amount of agency in how well you can play. If you suck, at the game, no offense, it's not actually, no, let me take that back. If you are not savvy enough with the ways that the game works, untap can be a very daunting thing. Because like you said, you may not know your character window. You may not know exactly when you can be playing things and how that works. And that's a huge factor. Um, not knowing that there are counter windows one and two to counters and when those counter windows proc is a huge part that could help you, you know, play the game better or worse. And Untapped's not going to let you know those things. They're not going to guide you. Be like, did you want to play this card now? Well, what about now? No, you have to know. At the same time, you also need to understand that a Spirit TCG who is topping tournaments every now and then could be winning tournaments more than now and then <laughs> if you just fucking practice. Now, granted, <laughs> I'm going to not hate on him because I'm almost in the same route. All this time that I spend, like, Mondays on this podcast, uh, Mondays are testing night for my crew, uh, making content where I'm making content for three different channels when I could be dun da da practicing. Uh, this is exactly how I operate, too. <laughs> I value content creation and uh, a couple other things over testing. And that shows in some of my matches. There are matches that I know the matchup with because I tested, and there are certain things where if I had just practiced more, I wouldn't have been caught unaware. And it definitely shows in some of my games. And sometimes you can get lucky. Like I said, first place Gen Con, uh, an embarrassing level of practice beforehand that I would not admit to until a certain amount of time had passed by, but kind of like really disrespectful to the people that got absolutely washed at Gen Con by me to know that like dead ass, I was like, go on, hell yeah, I'm playing that deck. And then literally played a couple times a week. <laughs> and then went to Gen Con and faced a bunch of blue decks and so that is a little disrespectful. But um, to be honest, if you want to get in your reps, chances are even with a, unless you have, it's not just a locals, because I'm not going to front. One time a week is not enough reps to become 
as seasoned as the Justin Rios's, the Brian Samuels, the Jordan Markles. The, there's so many other players I can list. Don't feel disrespectful if I didn't list you. But um, one time a week at locals is not enough. The players that are topping every single tournament they attend, the players that are seen as forces to be reckoned with, that are feared and respected by other players, I guarantee you those players are on untap a couple times. They are playing with their local people a couple times a week. Some of these people don't even live close to people. They're just on untap often. So getting in your reps is how you become well-oiled and able to just straight up fold tournaments in half. That being said, I understand this format is like the format of untap for everybody. Honestly, you just got to kind of get on there and see how you like it. And to be fair, there are people that can help you. Like, you're literally listening to a podcast where two people would love to let you know how to play the game better if you suck out our help. Like, if you just if you just sought out our help, if you just come out, join our discords, just talk to us. We will be glad to help you if your surrounding area is not. Now, how fast we'll respond, I don't know. I'm pretty awful at responding to discord, <laughs> but I'm getting better. But uh, yeah, just reach out to us. We'll help you, bro. And... I'm sure that after you get enough help, you'll be comfortable to get on, you know, untap and either be well about it or just correct the players that aren't playing as well as they need to be playing. Uh, it's a process, but, you know, what's not? Absolutely. So jumping on to the discords, Taurus Torax asks, what keyword do you think needs to be reworked or shown more love? For me, it's heroic and villainous. Honestly, I'm gonna go with his answer. Like, I barely even remember what heroic and villains do. Like, they they proc if you have another heroic card on board or something like that. If I remember correctly, I don't know. Those keywords yeah. were like super miss. So, like, yeah. The, if if I had to say a keyword, it has to be that one, right? Like, like they they yeah. like it, it, before Aegis got like buffed, where they just added a crap ton of abilities on every card that has Aegis. I probably would have said Aegis before. But like now that that's not the case, um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna just say probably heroic and villainous. Yeah, I'm gonna be like a little real. Um, it actually, I think you hit it right on the head. The typings you look, but my take is a little different. Uh, I think that every single like instead of leader locking cards, uh, I think leader locking is a way that you can help the game kind of stay within certain bounds. But I think that leader locking is also the death of ingenuity when it comes to building decks. I think that every hero and villain should have the hero or a villain or heroic or a villainous tag. I I think that that every single leader should have it. And I think cards should be locked to colors or the villainous tag. Like Galactic Buster should be allowed to be played by any villainous leader. By blue villain. Oh, that's hot. I like that. Yeah. And that would allow you to flex it in many different ways, but you can't just stick it in Soul Striker or SS4 Vegeta. You would need to run it in Baby. You would need to run it in Bojack. Um, And I think that you can moderate a lot of cards like this. And yes, it would suck for certain people. But at the same time, does Dragon Fist Goku need to be shoved into a deck? No. That's just that's so not thematic. And for a game that's very thematic, I think that this could really allow you to Sorting these things into hero, uh, heroic and uh, the villainous, I think this could really divide how you build decks. There could be like a 
a deck where you're like, okay, you know, uh, yellow reboot Garlic Jr. isn't the best yellow leader. But he has access to these five cards that I don't want to play without. Like, can you imagine if Robotic Repost was a villainous card and you had to play a yellow villain to play Robotic Repost? That would change the dynamic of yellow. Yellow would not be the catch-all if you play yellow, you get yellow defensive suite. You would have to actively look into leaders like Wish Zamasu, like a yellow Frieza, like a yellow Ginyu, to be able to play some of these cards. And while that may seem constricted to people for now, I think that would actually be a really good step in the right direction for not making these deck archetypes homogeneous. You can't just look at every yellow deck and know it's going to play 20 of the same card. Yeah, so that's just I, me. Yeah, no, I actually think that solution is super elegant. Um, I really like that idea because like, because like that that's kind of the problem, right? Like if our if our generic cards are so incredibly good that they go in every deck, every deck basically becomes a flavor of that. And there's like no opportunity cost. Like you're not missing out because you get to run everything that's good. Alternatively, there are archetypes that are so incredibly locked that it's like you're only stuck playing that one strategy to play with those cards. Um, and I've had frustrations with both because they limit creativity to something or another. The generic decks all look the same and the R-type decks are built for you. So I do actually think that like middle ground of like opening up leader locked cards, but restricting them to not be able to the entirety of their color pool would be like a huge boon in making, right? Cause like, I feel like I never really have to make hard decisions when I'm building a deck in Dragon Ball. I know what cards I can run. I know what cards I'm not allowed to run. And they're really just based on whether it's leader locked or not. And then from there, it's like I can run the best stuff that that color has. So there's like not really all that much opportunity cost to not to not run everything I want to run. So having more constraints to make the deck building process feel like a process would probably be really cool. So I actually like one the answer. I do actually think villainous and heroic is the answer. And the and like reworking it into something like that, I think, is super elegant. So yeah, big fan of your idea. Yeah, y'all don't even know how much thought I'll be putting into this game. Like, <laughs> like, I'm serious. There's a lot of time. Uh, Slasher X8 asks, with the current rate of keyword skills slash skills on cards, and each year we get more, when do you think is enough? Or what do you think they should do in the future moving forward with an existing keyword skills? I personally am at belief that if they do another four years of adding keyword skills, it will become an overwhelming for new players and want to learn as the mountain of knowledge only gets higher um i kind of disagree um because not every keyword is relevant all at the same time right like um keywords are just effectively a smart way to group a type of ability right like like i think keywording is so much more elegant than the way Yu-Gi-Oh does it where it's spelt out with every single card like it was a huge mind blow when they decide to shorten graveyard to GY and like that saves so much card space, right? Like I just think keywording is just a, a, a tool designers get to use to make it more elegant for skills that are repeated often to come up in card tech. So I think in general, I have no issues with skills like keep on going, right? Like, cause like even like if I just scroll through, right? Like desire is a keyword, but like does desire matter? No, cause no one plays wish decks, but it, the skill, the, you know, the skill text is there if ever you wanted to go back and look into it. A uh, swap's only relevant when there's a swap deck, for example. So I think there's a ton of keywords that like, sure, if it was like we had like a million different like counters, even though at the moment I think there's like only four, um, 
at that point it could get really bad. But in general, I think Dragon Ball has been a pretty good... Like, ever since we got Unisons, we've had, what, four keywords, I think, introduced? So that means in two years, we've had, like, four keywords between a Spirit Boost, Empower, Limit, which is just, like, again, a rework of skills that were already written on cards. Uh, and uh, what's... No, I think that's it, right? Limit one. Yep. So, like... So, we don't even need to count limit because limit was a condent like just how you said like graveyard into gy limit and 99 of the time it's just condensing the mouthful that says you can only use this effect once per turn across all cards yeah exactly uh unique i think unique was the last one yeah so like which again is just a substitution of saying you can only have one copy on the field which was like a permanent before so um i think keywording's fine i i, I don't think they introduced too many and i think at the current pace uh it's fine yeah, I think um I think also like like they're slowing down the pace of keywords, but at the same time, I do definitely agree with George. If uh if other keywords are becoming irrelevant or you know not really as focused on, you can add another couple keywords and really just kind of work the game. That's how most TCGs work. I mean, we're not anywhere near Yu-Gi-Oh levels of changing entire game mechanic every couple sets, but like you you really have a little room to go into, especially because some of these keywords are almost like breathing. Yes, it can be a little hard to intake, but like what game isn't? Like you can't step into Yu-Gi-Oh and understand links in like a moment because the moment you understand links, you also have to understand that Exceeds and Synchros work their way into those. Fusions work their way into those. Any game that's been established for years, you're gonna have to go back and do your research or else you're not going to understand the game. But with Dragon Ball, understanding how critical works is not like mind-blowing you know like critical is simple if it has critical you don't take the life to hand if it has double strike you're dealing two life if it has triple strike you're dealing three life if it has dual attack you're swinging two times a lot of these keywords are so simplistic that like like i i feel like keywords actually are really simplistic in this game spirit boost yeah you got to understand it the first time you mention it but it's a cost you take one two markers off of a unison so the moment you read what Spirit Boost does, you don't have to like really frazzle your brain to contemplate it later. It's, it's a simple cost. I think that uh, because keywords aren't game mechanics, they're generally either static conditions or a cost of a card. I think that, like, honestly, that's probably the way they can innovate the game the most without hurting the innovation of the game. Because you really learn the keyword once and you don't really have to ever allot brain power to it again, in my opinion. Agreed, yeah. Pretty much. Uh, Wigglewaff asks, do you think there are any cards in the current meta that need to be hit on the ban list? Um, oh, I mean, yeah. I've, been, I've been saying for a while that thwarting needs to be touched in some way or another. Uh, 25 double strike draws you a card, removes a card off the board for one energy. is a little bit redonkulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, I don't know... Maybe KP gets t- diddled a little. Um, I'm not too sure what they do, but I, I think that's it. I think the meta's fine. Am I, am I crazy? I mean, I, do, I mean, okay, here's the thing. My opinion's a little warped because I haven't played this game proper in like a couple of months and won't be playing it proper for another three months. So my opinion on it's very currently skewed, especially since I don't play for fun all that much these days. So uh, I guess I'll lean on Chris on this one, but those are the only two. Oh, and then like, Maybe if Bandai's tired of seeing Sin Shenron be a deck, they 
they do something to it. But you can't do something to Sin Shenron without killing the deck. So, eh. yeah. And I think uh, honestly, a lot of uh, something that a lot of people don't want to admit is that KP is almost in the same realm. At this point, almost all of King Piccolo's deck is archetype specific. And so hurting KP would either involve thrashing the leader or hitting multiple cards in the archetype, and that would actually probably make the deck unplayable. So I think KP and Sin Shinron are in these weird positions of you either make the format able to combat them heavier, make some more silver bullets for their type of play, or you have to hurt the decks to the point where they cannot be played for fear of running a subpar deck. Um, when it comes to thwarting, I've already given my opinions on this in my like Gogeta Zeno video, how I got this strong and what can we do from here. Thwarting needs to either count your opponent's energy as two or higher to play it, or Thwarting needs to cost two energy to be played. That way, you can't play Thwarting on turn one, or in its worst case scenario of needing to cost two energy, you cannot play, or actually, either way, you can't play Thwarting and SSG Trunks in the same two turns. You can't play Thwarting on turn one, that means you can't play them both on turn or turn two. But you could play them both on turn three. So I think they need to work on the entry cost of thwarting. It needs to be either counting your opponent's energy or it needs to cost energy flat out. Um, I've been testing with Cooler, and I feel like Demigra, Unison of Sorcery, is going to be a massive problem next format because it gives Cooler a window of having a damn near uninteractable turn one and two from the opposing player. It just gives them the perfect setup, and there's no way you can break it. You can't clear Demigra off the board. And any attacks you send their way is going to bring them closer to Awakening. And it just puts your cooler player in an overwhelming position of stability. Um, I think that Swift Retaliation Cooler is a card that needs to go. Counter-Counter is very, very interesting. And I think at this point, Counter-Counter cards never need to be a plus. I don't care how much energy it costs. I think at this point, Counter-Counters always need to be a hard neg for the person Counter-Countering. Because the ability to look at a game mechanic like countering and say, no, we're ignoring that, needs to come at a steep cost. Cooler, having a draw attached to it and another draw if your opponent's tapped out, congratulations, the card costs three. By the time you're using Swift Retaliation Cooler, your opponent has six tapped. It's just actually not not happening. So a card that's going to plus one you at the cost of three energy for forcing attack through is not healthy for the game. Uh, it just needs to go. And then at... That point, I think I'm really kind of just spitballing. Not many cards, I think, kind of garner attention in terms of needing to be put out of the game. But those are just like my biggest things. I might be missing something, but those are my biggest points right now. Retaliation, counter, counter, that pluses, it's not, it's not healthy. Uh, Demigra makes some toxic setups in the next set. The wording needs to be looked at for sure. And um, yeah, for the most part, that's it. Sin and Piccolo are weird to touch. There's going to be a lot of work that needs to be put in there. Not a lot, just a work. You can't really point. I think Sin and uh, King Piccolo, you actually need people to test the decks and then test them with multiple iterations of bandless hits to figure out what hits allow the deck to still function at a lesser capacity and what hits actually kill the deck beyond playability, regardless of how somebody may try to tech it. Yeah, makes sense to me. I forgot about Cooler, but yeah, fuck Cooler. Oh, there's one more card. There's one more card. Um, Oceanus, Black Oceanus negates. That needs to be. That needs to be what? a black. Realm. That needs to be black leader only. Bro, bro, that shit gets answered by every counterplay under the sun. Like what? It it definitely does. 
get answers by every counterplay under the sun. But I personally feel like my issue with Dragon Ball Super is a game that there's no single deck that doesn't deck thin that's playable. Like, if your deck is playable, it has a certain threshold of deck thinning. And Oceanus is not a card that can be played around correctly outside of having the actual counterplay to hurt it. It's a card that if it resolves, it punishes you for literally playing the game how Bandai designed the game played. And being access to every single color, because it's a generic counter, puts it in this position where if it's a best of one format, you might as well have a couple copies because it is inherently going to play nastily with the format you're in. Oh, you got one off. They counter two, but you got one off. Chances are you're still winning that game because you gave them a single turn where they can't push into you. Um, you go into formats where decks are particularly fast. Like you just have certain decks like uh, you know U7 Goku that has to start pausing how it plays in terms of how you're controlling the flow of their game. You have decks like Black Hatch that are going to put you in positions where they know the game's going to go long. Well, congratulations. They've added another layer of clock. You have mill decks that are already punishing you for playing the game how it's meant to be played. But now they have another asset on top of that that double downs on that punishment. You have decks that accelerate, like my favorite, U7 Gohan, which they accelerate due by nature, and that's the strength of that deck that becomes an absolute crux when you're playing against that. And granted, we have the tools. You have your god ceilings. You have your um, charismatic doesn't do shit. You have your god ceilings. You have your uh, resolve renewed. You have some counter counters and yellow but the fact of the matter is milling is a concept in general that is directly inhibitive to just the flow of the game and i think that this effect is so powerful at that mill four per swing that it needs to be locked to the color it was designed to be played in because in a sin shinron deck the power level is low enough to the point where you need that mill alt win con and the other cards are milling you one at a time not chunks at a time and so it kind of fits in well with that deck and other black decks you may not even want to play ocean that's not most other black decks are aggressive it's not your point to try to mill them out however shoving this into any blue deck that wants to slow the game shoving this into any yellow deck that wants to slow the game i think that's where you start kind of abusing a card more than using a card in my opinion Man, you're just fucking mad because you're a Gohan player. And boo-hoo, I can't draw 10 fucking cards a turn without getting punished. Oh, to be completely fair, I will draw 10 cards and I will resolve on <laughs> you every time. I have not had a single Oceanus resolved on me playing Gohan. They left two energy open and I've been like, crap, get that shit out of here. Or I've been like, oh, that's nice. Let me remove your super combo. And then I'm just going to resolve on you. Let you. Let it be known, I have not been caught slipping on Oceanus. Ivo played me with Black Hatch at, like, table seven. None of his Oceanus has landed. I was fine on that front. It was just that, like, I think that, I think that really, no, I think maybe one land. But I think that, uh, literally, it's just, I've always felt Mill was weird in this game because of the mention, uh, the, the reasons I mentioned. And I think Oceanus is just, I think it's gross that people will literally look at a format and be like, well, time to sideboard the Oceanus is not just because Oceanus is a strong card but because it allows them to gain a ridiculous advantage just because of how a tournament structure is set up. And that can be said to, you know, change the tournament structure, but I also believe that shows the toxicity of a card when people literally use it to cheese games. It's okay, players, mill players. I'll protect you from Daddy Spencer. 
<laughs> no, nah, very fair, very fair. Uh, I agree. I think I think you're uh, pretty astute as far as the things that are considered on the ban list for sure. But we'll see. I mean, I'm gonna get one in a couple in what like a month and a bit. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, Majin Ping asks, "What is an older leader that you would <laughs> Wait, want?" Majin what? Majin Ping. Okay, cool. I was. Thought that G was missing. I was like, "Who dare?" Asks, "What is an older leader that you would want a reboot of or a new version of that character as a leader card?" Um, we've definitely answered this question previously on older casts. So if you like, go check out other episodes. Uh, but as a quick recap, um, to be honest, a lot of them are already getting rebooted. I've said time and time again. It's incredible how Pan has not been rebooted. So shout out to Eric Salito. She's going to get rebooted. Uh, another one of my picks was Life Trunks because they killed him. Well, they're rebooting him. So presumably there's, he's going to work somehow. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Goku Black proper, I guess, is the only one I really have to say. Like the blue Goku Black. He gets a ton of weird support and he's gotten some reboot-ish cards that make him work interestingly. Um, but the leader himself could probably do with the reboot. But like, he's kind of broken. If like he was like fully unerotted, so <laughs> so so I don't know if we want a mecha Frieza situation where like they make a version of him based off his strategy and he like breaks again and they have to do something about him. So I'm not entirely sure. Um, I think they've done a really good job of rebooting the stuff I've cared about. So to that end, I don't. I'm I'm pretty content, especially knowing the lineup that we're getting in terms of reboots coming down the pipeline. So um, at the moment, I'm pretty content with uh, knowing what we know is coming down uh, for what it's worth. Yeah, memes aside, um, instead of getting into our normal, our normal, you know, Invoker, you know, Gogeta, Gohan conversations, I literally think that if I could choose any leader to get a confirmed reboot, it would be uh, Garlic Jr. That's I'm fair. Gonna, I'm not going to front. Like, Garlic Jr. dropped, that, and it was just, like, ass. I feel like that yeah. archetype is, like, almost there. It's almost. And let's let's actually be completely honest. Garlic Jr. back on his name. Um, He was the only... The only lead, he was the only villain before Zamasu that was actually able to wish for immortality and get it. Like by that merit alone, he deserves more respect on his name because, like, who who couldn't do that? Frieza couldn't do that. Vegeta couldn't do that. Like there were so many people that failed at that. And what is Zamasu? Zamasu needed like godly amps. He needed inside knowledge. He distorted time, and then his bitch ass chose a reality that Supreme Kai died in, inadvertently killing Beerus, inadvertently sending Whis off to sleep to set up shop. Like, he had to <laughs> do so much to wish for immortality. You know what Garlic Jr. did? He sent his... Stole all the Dragon Balls and just wished for that shit. Like, he didn't... This man just came up and just did his work and was like, I'm done. Job's done. And, like, got immortality. And I think that actually deserves, like, mad respect on his True. Very fair. Yeah. Both on a mechanical and character standpoint. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, I saved it to last question from Getum slash Cedric slash. Oh, Kennedy. yeah. Currently push a C on the server. <laughs> push, push a C. <laughs> <laughs> um, so recap from the last question where he asked us if we'd rather have super speed or super strength. He says, so let's say Quicksilver <laughs> fast for super speed. Super strength gets you enhanced durability and regeneration to kind of interact, like counteract the fact that I said it doesn't matter if you have super strength, if you just get shot by a bullet. Um, however, he added on top of that, 
teleportation like the movie Jumper or healing factor at a Wolverine level? Okay, you're igniting the comic boy in me. First off, we're dumpstering Quicksilver speed because unless the author decides that Quicksilver is broken for the run, Quicksilver essentially is like faster than Usain Bolt but can still be hit by other fast heroes. Like he's fast, but like if Quicksilver gets into your base and he goes, fuck this shit, I'm out. And he starts running out of your base and any high level uh, telepath or like force field user, like Sue Storm is just like, lock off the door. She can literally put up a force field faster than Quicksilver can reach the door from like 15 feet away. That's stupid. Like Quicksilver speed is ass tier. (laughs) I I feel like to make it enticing, you'd have to make it like flash. Uh, and, I mean, there's no in between. Flash is broken. <laughs> Quicksilver, Quicksilver can still get caught lacking. So there's like no in between. I'm, you put it at Quicksilver speed, it's gone. Um, and let's also put Wolverine kind of out the mix too. Because like Wolverine is like, you have like one part that people don't seem to understand about Wolverine is that Wolverine has no pain negation. Wolverine has just been mortally wounded multiple times over the course of like 200 Bro, years. But like, he's also been like at and a fucking like on an atomical level, like melted <laughs> and then came back from it. Like nobody <laughs> listening to this podcast would want to have the memories of having skin flayed from your bones by 15th degree heat searing. And then regenerate it. Like, that's just a memory you don't want. Wolverine, like, if you watch, if you, like, read comics, Wolverine, when he opens up about his mental health, he is just in a position where he's just like, I have died so many times and come back to life. Like, years don't mean anything to me. Like, moments of, like, clarity don't come to me anymore. These these days, these months, these years, they are a blur. I've been on the cusp of life and death. It's just one fluid existence. Like, his concept of time, his concept of, like, being is all skewed because his existence is pain. Like, the dude gets shot and he feels it. And he pushes past it. I don't think anybody would want that smoke. I don't want to get put in a car crash. And, like, normally you go through these experiences and you fucking die. You don't get your body folded like a lawn chair in unnatural ways and then crinkle cut yourself back into a normal human skeletal structure and then keep it moving. Like that shit comes with some mental scarring. And I don't think a lot of people understand that that shit probably horribly, (laughs) like horribly. There's a, there's a scene in one of the X-Men movies where Rogue was like, does it hurt when his claws come out? And he was like, every Every time, time, baby, why (laughs) you don't, you don't, These things are not good. So um, it's definitely not that. (laughs) There are some times where you probably would want to die, but you're sitting there regenerating after knowing what it felt like to almost die. That that just doesn't seem like the move. Um, You said, they said teleportation? Yeah, like the movie Jumper. I'm trying to remember Jumper. Like, what were the drawbacks to Jumper? I I, I can't remember what his abilities work like. Um, Let's see. Aimless David Rice has the ability to instantly transport himself to any place he can imagine. Okay, so I guess if he imagines it, he can just jump to it. All right, but... Yeah, 
that's pretty heat. But I think there are some ramifications. Uh, I don't want to bring it back to... But I can teleport to my room, and 99.9% of the time, nobody's going to be in my room. So I'll teleport here and be safe. But it's the exit you really can't be sure to. Like, could you teleport to work and 100% know that nobody's going to be sitting in the fucking bathroom stall taking a shit when you teleport in there trying to secretly get into work? Or, like, you know, that you won't be spotted. Because if you get spotted, chances are you got about a six-month timetable before you're in a government facility. <laughs> so we're here again. <laughs> and And you never know. Like, you could get yoked up and be like, I'm out. But, like, what are the ramifications? Like, if people are holding on to you, don't they get teleported too? Because if that's the case, like, chances are you end up in that black site, you stay in that black site. Or what if they've been studying around you? What if they, like, what if they helped you get these powers? They might know a little bit more than you do about what you can and cannot do and what inhibits you. Look, if I get a superpower, I need to not end up in a government facility. That's my (laughs) bottom line. Like being hooked up to some nodes and some syringes and them trying to replicate why I do what I do. That's just not going to work for me. Um, The super strength with regeneration is pretty cool, but you got to be able to like, you got to be able to like, I don't know. I need to know a little bit more. Like, can I get knocked out easily? Because the moment you get knocked out after some life-threatening event and you get picked up by paramedics and they see your wounds heal, bam, black site. That's well, that's ass. <laughs> well you also said <laughs> enhanced durability, so I presumably you can take a decent hit. But all right, real talk. If I can play off getting hit by a car and then roll over and be like, <laughs> it didn't hit me. It didn't hit me as hard as y'all thought it hit. I'll just go home and walk it off. We may be at a good point, but even then, I gotta make sure I don't get into too many of these situations. Like we need like. We need like one life-threatening event every couple of years that people yeah. catch on camera. Because I don't know how many times I can say being under the ground with no record of your existence on the internet at all. Look, if Elon Musk can erase a picture that he didn't like from Google, the government can erase your existence from all known records. True. And silence people that ask too many questions. And chances are, if you are potentially the next holy grail in terms of, uh, you know, fountain of youth, in terms of stem cells, like, you're going to be erased. Like, you you can't pay me enough to risk being yoked up by the government for maniacal, like, means. So, um, teleportation seems pretty cool because I can get to certain places. And, you know, there might be those people I can trust. Like, uh, I date somebody that lives an hour and a half away. If I can just teleport into them draws, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm literally gone. That may be the actual move. If I can be like, oh yeah, I got to work and traffic, bitch. You know what? I'll pick up my car tomorrow. You know, actually, I might cheat like that. I may park my car at work and just teleport home and be like, okay, if I teleport to my job at like five in the morning and teleport into my car, nobody's going to be in my car and it's going to be dark outside. So nobody can see me teleport into my car. I might teleport into my fucking car, go get some Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that jumper teleportation may be the safest because I can kind of control where I'm teleporting to and when. And because of that, I can more ensure that I will not be spotted and fucked up and put in a black site. 
<laughs> okay, so uh, <laughs> thrown into the dark room aside for me, <laughs> um, I guess mine. So I guess just to so when it comes to the Wolverine healing factor, does that that doesn't give him like indefinite youth slash can live forever, does it? I don't think so, eh? No, because Wolverine does age. It yeah. takes a very long time, but like, so Wolverine in like 2100, he's a man that's very old, very crotchety. It's harder for him to move, but he's also, he was a grown-ass man reaching his adulthood during the Civil War. So it's like, you kind of got to think, Wolverine's not immortal. He's just probably got like a 300-year lifespan. Mm. Okay, yeah, because if that was like an immortality slash like eternal youth type of shit, I probably would have went with that one. Because like I'm kind of sick and twisted, and I do want to see how this earth goes one day. So, um, that not being a thing, probably teleportation. But teleportation is always so weird. Like one of the situations that you provided, there's no guarantee. Two, it's like I think um, uh, a certain scientific railgun deals with um like meta powers like this really well in that like all the people who use abilities need to make an immense amount of calculations before they use them so like let's say like you're a teleportation user like what if you fuck up like your prediction of how, where you're supposed to teleport and like now your arm is through a cement wall you just lost your arm right so like so like it, are the ramifications like there's a fail safe that will forever prevent me from being like stuck or am I like Mirio from like MHA where it's like, yeah. where like I could just like actually fuck up using my power and die in a cement wall, you know, like that's so, eh, <laughs> I, I mean, know. no, 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 that makes sense. Like, I think like further diving in, like I'm looking at where I, there is a four by maybe six foot space right next to me that I know that if I was teleporting to my home, that would be my landing place. No matter what, I would make sure that I got practiced at always appearing in that singular location because there's not going to be a single thing within that location that I could face through. Mm. Now, with a car, that may be weird because if your focus is off, you could be through the steering wheel, you could be through the shit. Like, there are so many things. But at that same point, what if I were to be like, okay, this place is seven minutes walking distance from my home or from my job. But... I could also clear out another five by five space that there's no trees, there's no pine cones, you know, there's no, there's like, if I teleport here, not only am I out of sight, but I'm landing here. And if you want to get into semantics with that, maybe I teleport and I know that I'm going to be a foot off the ground. Maybe that's in my calculations. You said there's so many calculations. I think that's actually really correct. Like I teleport in this five by five space in my basement, a foot off the ground. That way, it doesn't even matter if I have, like, a cat there. I teleport, my cat's like, oh, shit, runs out of the way, and then I touch the ground. Yeah. You know, I teleport, there could be some leaves. Those leaves aren't through my foot now causing issues. <laughs> I'm, just like, right? I'm just like, oh, I'm above the ground, and I'm going to... So I think there is a lot, but I think that being meticulous, you could probably get around some of that. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, it's, it's always weird, because, like... You know, power is always cool to think about, but when you actually get into their like real applications in the real world, it's kind of fucky. Like, let's say you had the power to stop time. It wouldn't be as great as you think it is because light moves, <laughs> which means that you would be in eternal darkness because without the movement of light actually fucking bouncing from one thing to another, you can't actually see shit. So like a lot of powers are just really weird if you actually try and eternalize them in real life. But either way, um, those would be our picks uh, until I'm sure Cedric will come up with new ones for next week.
<laughs> Pusher C is the king of our mailbag. <laughs> and mentioning the mailbag, if anybody else, if any of our listeners has any questions that they'd like to ask or ask us on air, uh, again, just tweet at me at Spirit TV with the hashtag SC Mailbag or ask us in the discords and we will get to them on air. So with that said, that was our episode for today. I, uh, what can our listeners expect from you this week, Chris? One, if y'all wanted an off-the-book seminar about superpowers and what's cool and what's not cool and what ends up, you know, putting you in a black site, I just think you guys need to understand that some of y'all can't get caught not cheating on webcam. Some of y'all can't get caught not cheating on your significant others. You definitely can't get caught with, like, can't not get caught with superpowers. <laughs> like, where social media exists. This is just not your game. Like, come on, if you're pulling Frieza charismatic villains off of the screen onto your playmat, how do you think you're going to start flying and not get caught by some idiot with a smartphone? Like, it's just, just stop it. <laughs> just literally stop it. Um, but from this week, uh, I can tell you there's a lot working on right now. I just finished my thumbnail for the Red Ribbon Army archetype overview. Um, so tomorrow I will be seeing the new spoilers and I'll be going into that. So you'll expect it on my page. The day after that, you should be receiving the Metacooler archetype breakdown where I give a skeleton build and kind of show you how some of the new interactions work. The day after that, it should be the Red Ribbon Army part two. Um, now this could be not the case because if I look at the card numbers and see that there's a specific gap between red or between uh, blue and green, I'll know that they intend to spoil on Friday too. And if they spoil on Friday too, like it really depends on how Thursday's spoilers look. If I see Thursday's spoilers and I don't see enough to where I think it's done or the numbers don't add up, um, that's going to be an issue for me. And I'll probably hold off until Friday for the blue, but I also have a fight night I'm organizing. So at the very least, this week, you can expect two Red Ribbon Army videos and a uh, Meta Cooler uh, archetype breakdown. No, and yeah, that's pretty much that. Awesome. Well, on my end, uh, I'm actually uh, gone to Vegas for the week. So content on my end will not be there. But one thing that I can say is that I am signed up for the uh, whatever cup. For Card of Magica. <laughs> so not this weekend because I won't be around this upcoming weekend, but the weekend afterwards, May 14th, I will be playing in the Ultimate Cup or the Unison Warrior Cup. So uh, you guys will be able to jump onto my stream and watch me play a tournament. I don't know what UW only deck uh, I'll pick. I'm kind of considering King Cole just because like green does green things <laughs> and yeah. like King Cole just kind of stands on its own. So like, hey, why not? And I already have it built and y'all know I'm lazy. So we'll see, especially because like <laughs> I don't know if I'm a strong enough man to play blue without Dimension Magic or Bean. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Incredible, I'm not strong enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's kind of... Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's kind of what I've... Oh, but I will say, though, that because I'm in Vegas, um, me and uh, Brian from Stage Zero, a.k.a. also known as Android... Uh, may have some potential to collab on some content. So if, let me know in the comments, guys, if you guys have anything that you think would be cool for me to Brian and do together. I think we're going to try and do some skits and stuff like that together and anything we can do interesting, I'd love to add uh, on our shooting day when we sync up. So let me know down there. With that said, that was our show for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. Enjoy your week. Best of luck on your testing as you prep for PPG and Carta, if you're going to be playing in those. And as always, 
best of luck with your top decks. Your top decks, staying out of black sites, all of that.